you could take your Bible and find Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Tonight we're back in our, our series through the parables of Christ. It's crazy to think that this series easily lasts us all fall and all spring, like a whole school year. I mean, with as, with as many parables as we already have behind us and we still have more to go. And by the way, Tullus is going to teach one of those. Where, where's Tullus? Yeah, there he is. Coming up, coming up next month. Um, it just, but all these parables just shows, it just reminded me again as I was preparing this today, just how Jesus seemingly constantly used parables in his teaching. Uh, and, and, and made use of stories when he taught. And that's not, well, that doesn't need to be lost on us. And knowing that he, knowing that there's the, that many parables, that, and knowing that that was the predominant way that when he, uh, when he wanted to teach us about himself and about what he came to do and about the kingdom that he was establishing, how to enter that kingdom, what life in that kingdom is like, and all the, the most important things. And the method he used to communicate that was parables. There's so many of them. That alone should give us sense enough to have a plan to read through these parables and study them regularly um, in whatever Bible reading plan we have. And have a Bible reading plan, by the way. Um, because if Jesus thought these were the most effective or one of the most effective teaching methods, they ought to be one of our most regular readings. Um, but tonight we come to another one of the, one of the shorter uh, passages, or one of the shorter and simpler parables tonight, um, which we're going we're gonna to study the parable along with the few verses that precede it that give it a little more context. So if you're in Luke 13... Uh, we're going to look at the parable of the barren fig tree, which is just verses 6 through 9. Um, so it's real short and very to the point. We're also going to look at verses 1 through 5 that precede it, which give these are the things, that, the words and the context that gives rise to the parable in the first place. And again, it's very straightforward. may not take us very long to get, to get the point across, so we'll see. So that said, let's read our passage, and then I'll make clear what I want us to take away from it. So Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Follow along as I read aloud. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree... Uh, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and, 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 and put on manure. And then, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, what we just read is, is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And 
Being that, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, please give us eyes to see the truth in what Jesus teaches us here. Give us eyes to see it clearly. Would you give us minds to understand it just as clearly? Hearts to feel the weight of what he's saying. Hearts to um, embrace without question, without reservation, what he says here. Uh, would you give us wills to obey what he admonishes us to do here? And Holy Spirit, would you give us all ears to hear? And would you give me the help that I do need to teach? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been at this long enough in these parables that, to know that Jesus tells a variety of parables. He, he, but almost all of them have to do with his kingdom, some, some aspect of the kingdom that he was coming to establish, the kingdom of Christ. And, you know, there's a, how a person enters the kingdom uh, on, on, on the person, what kind of person uh, enters his kingdom. And a ton of the parables have to do with life inside that kingdom. What somebody who is part of his kingdom, what, what they ought to live like in, as, as being part of their kingdom, as part of that kingdom. How do they conduct their lives as a follower of Christ? And pretty clearly, if you were paying attention, the parable we just read and are looking at today it comes out at a different angle. Um, you don't find the word kingdom in it, but Jesus tells us in another place all the parables are about his kingdom. It emphasizes the warning and the danger of not entering that kingdom, uh, of missing it, of remaining outside of it. And like I said, it's a pretty basic message, but it's one that we need to hear. It, it, was, it was one that he was... It, we're going to see it in a second. You'll, we can tell this parable, especially when we look at it in its context, it's one that Jesus was directing, aiming, aiming directly at unbelieving Israelites at his day. Um, but most certainly it has application to us, and maybe especially to us, who have as many advantage of the same advantages that they had, if not more in some respects, and yet they still remained in dangerous unbelief. So if you're taking notes... Here's what I want us to see, just two points. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and, and where it talks about the circumstances that, that brought Jesus, they brought the circumstances that they brought to Jesus for comment, which eventually led to the parable. They brought up uh, a, a tragic circumstance to which Jesus himself reminded them of a second one. So in so doing, he teaches the first point about the purpose of trials. That's going to be the first point. I, there's no way I could say everything there is to say about the purpose of trials in one in one message, but I'll say what I think it shows us here, the purpose of trials. Um, and then, that's verses 1 through 5, and then with that context in mind, we're going to look at the parable in verses 6, uh, that's 1 through 5, and then we'll look at the parable in 6 through 9. Uh, and even as he carries over the warnings of the earlier verses, we see in 6 through 9 the patience of God, the patience of God. Um, these, ver these verses, this whole passage, they have a hard bite to them. Uh, as Jesus says, he says in verse 3, he says in verse 5, he says again at the end of verse 9, that apart from genuine repentance, judgment's coming. That's just what, it's, that's what he says. Uh, but even as that is a message that, that, that's clearly the message being delivered, you can't miss his emphasis in that parable on God's patience in the meantime. Okay, so just those two points, and we'll say what we find here about those, and then we'll be done.
But let's dive in and think first about verses 1 through 5 and what Jesus teaches us about the purpose of trials. Just to situate you in, in, in Luke's gospel, our passage here is in the middle of an extended teaching section in Luke. Um, back near, if you flipped over, back near the end of chapter 11. So if you're looking at chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 37, Jesus went to a Pharisee's house. Back in chapter 11, verse 37, he went to a Pharisee's house. And it says in, in chapter 11, verse 53, that he was trying to leave that house after dinner. Uh, but they, they followed him out there in the Pharisees, and they, they kept asking him many uh, more things, even as he was trying to leave the house. And then chapter 12 begins saying, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. Uh, so I take it, this, all this was as in the meantime means this was right outside the house of the Pharisee. And, for, and so for the rest of the chapter, of chapter 12, and on into chapter 13 today, Jesus is still presumably outside that Pharisee's house where he just had dinner, but thousands of people have shown up, and he's talking to them. Uh, and, and so he's teaching the crowds, he's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees and scribes. And our, our passage begins in verse 1, says, there were some present, and their identity is not given. We don't know if it was the Jewish rulers who were bringing this up or some of the common people who had gathered to hear what Jesus had to say or to see what he would do. I, I think it's the latter. Either way, whoever these were, some present, they bring up a historical incident that, that is only mentioned here. Um, and not, we don't know of any other outside historical sources in which this is found. But they say it's, it's, a, it's an incident about Pilate, Pontius Pilate, murdering some Galileans as they were offering their sacrifices. That's what, by the way, is meant in verse 1 of, Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices. We only know what we're told here about that instance because, like I said, no other ancient sources talk, us, talk to us about, what, about this event. But it, we do know from other outside sources this fits, this fits Pontius Pilate, uh, who did some very violent and vindictive things toward the Jews in his reign. Um, but notice, if you notice, verse 1 doesn't provide us any written motive for their bringing up this historical uh, circumstance of Pilate killing these people. Um, perhaps there's more to the conversation that we're just not privy to. Um, but Jesus knew some, there was something deeper in what they were, than what they wanted to address. So, um, and by the way, <laughs> that would fit, by the way, the rest of Luke's gospel. Jesus in Luke's gospel is constantly knowing people's thoughts. He's constantly perceiving people's thoughts or... Uh, he, will, he will answer, it'll say Jesus answered, and they didn't even ask him anything. You know, they, he, he did, but he, he, he knew what they were thinking, and we see something like that going on here. They tell Jesus about this tragic incident that Pilate inflicted on the Galileans, and verse 2 begins saying, and he answered them. Well, they didn't ask him anything. He answered them, though. He answered, he, you know, he, 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 Jesus could see Jesus could see behind what they were what they're thinking when they bring up this historical incident what they were thinking about it how they were interpreting that event and Jesus wanted to talk about that so when when they told him about what Pilate did to those people in Galilee Jesus answered them in verse 2 with a question in reply do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way. Now, why would Jesus ask him this question? 
uh, I think because he knew this would have been a very common assumption in that day. Um, we, by the way, we saw it exemplified in the scriptures recently when Pastor Brian was teaching in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. Remember? The man was born blind, and, and even Jesus' own disciples came up to him in John 9, 2 and said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that this man was born blind. Um, their assumption was someone must have sinned, uh, some kind of grave sin, really, uh, in order for this guy to be born blind. Or some, in, in this case, some, some, they would have thought those Galileans must have done something to have this kind of thing come upon them because they filtered all kinds of tragic events through this uh, lens of sort of retribution or divine retribution. Uh, this must be the consequence that God is handing down as some kind of punishment for some kind of grave or high-handed sin committed. And on, on the one hand, it's not difficult to see how some of, the, some of the, the Jewish people of that day might have come to a conclusion like that. I mean, and they maybe even thought that was a biblical way to think about it. That's, I mean, there is, I suppose, a way to read the Old Testament and read, for example, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and talk about blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience to think, oh, cur you know, disobeyed, that's why the curse came on you. Um, or, or even in the New Testament. Now, Hebrews wasn't written yet, but we see that you could, you could almost read, somebody could misread Hebrews in a certain way when it talks about God disciplining us. They could think about it in a retribution kind of way. And it's, um, it's, it's we see it in, in Job's friends, in Job. Uh, they're, they're thinking in this way. And so Jesus puts the question to them. Do they think that those Galileans who died were killed because they were worse sinners than other Galileans? And it basically it's a question, what do you think God was up to? Um, when, when, when you hear about things like that. And it's, Je Jesus' question right there is not a question with an expiration date. Um, it is still a very relevant question to us and to professing Christians. Um, even for believers who, when they come across trials or really hard times, it might cross their minds um, that God is, is punishing them for something. They, they, you know, I don't know what it is. I must have done something. Um, and, it, and it's good for us to remember more carefully, by the way, of what Hebrews 12, for example, is saying about, about God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 says specifically that God disciplines the one he loves. And it, the next line is, and he chastises every son he receives. Every son. So every child of God, if you're a child of God, you are disciplined. And it's not just the especially bad ones, right? Every child is disciplined by God. And, and what Jesus says in our passage here agrees with that. He asks them if they think that that happened to those Galileans because they were because they, more than all the others, were especially bad sinners. And what is Jesus' basic answer to, that, to his own question in verse 3? His basic answer is no. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. No. 
And then he'll add another point, an important tidbit that he's going to repeat three times. But don't miss the first part of his answer. Did it happen because they were worse sinners? No. When things happen to you, it's not because you somehow are a worse sinner than other sinners or God is taking special aim at you. Um, no, what Jesus actually says here is, is that when things like this happen to someone, he's speaking to everybody. That's what he's saying here. Which is why he follows the no with, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What happened to those Galileans was a message to everybody. Tom Schreiner is uh, a New Testament scholar. He paraphrases Jesus' intent this way. He says, as Tom Schreiner speaking, he says, when disasters strike, God speaks to all, warning us that we will all perish, that we will all be ruined unless we repent and turn from our sins. In, in other words, when something happens to someone, we don't need to examine their lives but our own we need to hear that when something happens to somebody we don't need to examine their lives but our own life that's especially relevant to us when it when when whatever that something is happens to someone that we're not particularly close to or especially if it happens to somebody we don't agree with you think about that. Um, social media is a rotten place, by the way. Um, but you don't have to be on social media, especially Twitter, to find professing Christians, professing Christians, claiming, for example, that it's, it's um, God's judgment against Islam, when tragedy strikes a Muslim population like the earthquakes in, in Turkey, you know? Or going back a few years when y'all were just now being born, when 9-11 when happened, professing Christians were saying, well, there's a lot of wickedness in New York City, and that's why it hit New York City. It's people today still operating with that kind of thinking jesus saying that's just wrong it's just wrong now it, it is certainly true that everything everything that happens like this in the world is because of sin and it's because we live in a broken world this is the kind of results that come from that and it's also true that individual sinful choices depending on what they are can have their own consequences so you can draw the direct line from, sometimes from sin to tragic event. Drunk driver hits another person, kills another person. You know, a mom of children. Well, that sin led to that, right? But when you're talking about, as Jesus seems to be talking here, something that is bigger than that, something you might call an, an, an act of God, you can't just read them like that, right? And Jesus, Jesus says specifically, don't do it. And to make it crystal clear that that's what he's doing, he, he offers his own other example. In verse 4, he mentions a tower in Siloam that fell, and it killed 18 people. So Jesus puts the question to them again. Basically, do you think that God tipped over that tower onto those people because 
their sins and our offenses, whoever those 18 people were, were just worse than all the other people in Jerusalem. And what again is Jesus' answer to that, that he supplied to his own question? No. It's not how it works. Jesus says, when that, when that tower fell on them, that wasn't a word to them. That's a word to everybody. Because it says, when, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When I hear about an event like that, um, it, it's not what does that tell me about them. It's what, is that say, what does that say to me? Like, and Jesus says, you're doing it wrong if you think that it, it didn't happen to you because they were somehow more deserving of what happened to them than, it, than for it to happen to you. It's, Jesus is saying, it's whatever, when you hear about a tragic event like that happening in the world, it's, it's meant to cause you to repent of your own sins because it could have just as easily happened to you. And if something does happen to you, certainly it, it should cause you to examine your own life, but no more than it should cause everyone around you to examine theirs. And I'll also say that when you come to the place and you actually believe that, and you believe what Jesus says, that we're all sinners, and something's, I'm going through something, but I believe that I'm, I'm, I'm not going through this because I'm a worse sinner than everybody else. If you come to that place and believe that, then his point is not to make you think less severely about your sin. His, his point is to make everybody else think more severely about their sin. Right? His point is not, hey, everybody's a sinner, so it's not really that big of a deal. No, his point is, know that everything that happens in the world is a foreshadow of something greater coming to everyone who doesn't repent of their sins. And it's this whole discussion that leads... Jesus to the parable that he tells in verses 6 through 9. So let's think through that parable quickly and, uh, and then we'll come to a close. Keeping in mind the strong words that he's given us already in verses 1 through 5. In, in a sense, Jesus isn't going to let up on the warning because he's going to repeat it again at the end of verse 9. But for the most part, verses 6 through 9, he's going to lay emphasis on the patience of God. Verse 6 begins, and he told them this parable. And then look at the opening words of the parable. A man had a fig tree. Man, that's so, that's so common. How many times have these parables involved a, a vineyard or a fig tree? Jesus wasn't, he, doesn't, he wasn't using this because he just liked nature, which he created. He's making a directed point by it. Uh, what was that? You, I, you, hopefully you could guess it by this point. He's directing it at Israel. Because in the Old Testament, this kind of imagery was used to describe Israel and their obedience or lack thereof. Let me just one example. Jeremiah 8.13. Jeremiah 8.13. God says of Israel, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. He's describing, he's describing Israel as a fig tree. And when I want to go find fruit, this is God talking to Israel and Jeremiah. When I went to find fruit on my people, I didn't find fruit. So, it, remember, it, it appears, as we come into chapter 13, that the, these crowds that Jesus was talking to were gathered just outside the home of a Pharisee with whom Jesus had just had dinner in chapter 12. And so, no doubt, there were several Jewish rulers gathered here. Um, and certainly, most of the people there would have been Jews. They would have understood that Jesus was talking to Israel when he started about a man having a fig tree. And especially as the story continues with the owner coming in verse 6 and looking for fr no for fruit on it and there was no fruit 
That's just a repeated scenario from the Old Testament, just like Jeremiah 8.13. But what happens in the parable? In verse 7, the owner says he's been looking for fruit on that fig tree for three years. That's just a figurative number. In an ag- agricultural terms, that's a while. I've been looking for a while for fruit. And likewise, Jesus is saying he's looked for a long time for fruit from Israel. And in the parable, he says, I haven't found any. And it might be worth pausing to hear to say, if the fig tree, if the fig, if the fig tree is Israel and the figs are fruit, what, what fruit? What, if the owner of the tree comes looking for fruit and, the, and, the, and it represents Israel, what fruit from them is in view here? What fruit was he looking for in Israel? Well, clearly, if you were reading this passage on your own, you want to look for context clues, context clues in this passage that might help you answer that question. And clearly, repentance of sins is in view, since that's the threefold command given in verse 3, um, 5, and 9. That's the answer that's right here in this passage. Jesus expected them to be repentant of their sins. But not only that, the immediate passage here doesn't, doesn't bear this out. But if you were just reading through the Gospel of Luke, you would have already come across this. Just a little bit before this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, in chapter 9, verse 51, we're told, when the days grew near, drew near, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that's clearly a, a reference to the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. Basically, that's a re- he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and to do the work that he would do for sinners to be forgiven when they repented. Um, and so he's saying in our passage, they weren't repentant. They didn't, they didn't come, and they didn't recognize the Savior when he came. And Jesus is, is on the latter half of his ministry by now, and he's saying he'd already said enough, he'd already done enough for them to recognize him when he came. And so in the parable, the owner is totally just and right to order the vine dresser to cut down the tree. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? That's just another way of Jesus telling them there, there was nothing worse about those Galileans on whom the tower fell or on, on whom Pilate murdered. Israel should be cut down. But in verse 8, the vine dresser replies to the owner and asks for a little more time so that he could tend to the plant, fertilize it. Maybe, maybe fruit would appear. The owner grants another year, after which it would be cut down if it bore no fruit. I think Jesus is intentionally conveying the patience of God. In an otherwise, like, really strong passage with a strong warning, it, it, it just communicates the patience of God and I, to us. And I say us because we, shouldn't, we should not read this passage in a way that commits the very sin that Jesus is condemning here. Which would be how? Reading this and making Israel out to be worse sinners than us. As if they needed to hear that and we don't. Um, Because I say we have every advantage that they had, and in some cases more. And Jesus says um, we should not expect a happy end. If we have all the advantages we have and our hearts are complacent or cold toward him. Even if we make an outward, even if we're like, come to CBS on Wednesday nights and come to church on Sunday mornings, if we make outward show by coming to church, 
but inwardly we still have complacent and cold hearts toward him. Perhaps as those who were offering sacrifices when Pilate killed them. I said at the outset of the parable, and, and even the verses that leading up to it, it's not a complicated passage at all. It's just, it's just one that hammers home the call for humility before God. Hammers home repentance of our sins. Hammers home trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And not, not only the call to repentance, but the warning to those who would know all this and still go our own way. So let's just close this way. What do we do with passages like this? Well, if, you, if you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that's what you do with this. You repent and you believe. But if you have repented of your sins and you do trust Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, um, this passage is just a call to repent and believe more. Um, like the man who cried to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I pray that God would help us heed this warning and this admonition, whatever place you find yourself in those two poles. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this, this word. It's, it's, um, it's not complicated. I ask that you would give us eyes to see and minds to understand, hearts to embrace, wills to obey. Lord, this passage was not hard to understand. It was very direct. And um, I, help, I, I pray that you would help us to be more discerning in our own lives. That you would help us discern our own circumstances and you would help us to discern what we see in the circumstances of others. Not to make us judgmental toward others, but humble in ourselves. And that, it, and that we would read the circumstances of our lives through the lens of your word and and it would cause us to be humble and repentant people, um, holding fast to our Savior. And thank you for your patience toward us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.